Hello and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2016 Jackson Hole Conference. I'm Chris Dower, Hoover's Director of Marketing and Strategic Communications. Our speaker in this podcast is John Cochran, a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. The title of his talk is Policies for Economic Growth, and it was recorded on August 3rd, 2016. Thank you very much. I, I especially appreciate, I poked my nose outside. I know what it's like out there. The fact that you're in here listening to me, I think, is a great honor. Uh, <laughs> uh, I want to talk about uh, economic growth. Um, uh, some of you may have seen this talk before, and you're going to see it again. Uh, I think this is the issue of our time. And, and um, this is an ongoing project for me. I'm, I'm putting together uh, all my ideas and various things in, into one place, and, and there's nothing better than a captive audience like yourself to help me think through ideas and, and hear from you where things are wrong and so forth. So when you come back next year, it may not be that different. Well, it, it will be that different, but it'll be the same general topic. Um, let's talk about uh, economic growth. Oh, let me, let me back up. That was supposed to be a surprise slide. Uh, <laughs> let's have a pop quiz. Which economy is better, uh, the 1950s or now? You read the New York Times especially, and oh, the 50s were so great. There were lots of middle-class jobs, as long as you were white, male, and a union member. Um, strong economic growth, uh, wonderful times, weren't they? And this kind of this misty-eyed how wonderful it was. Well, uh, some of us are old enough to remember them. Uh, what I've got here is, is the, a graph of GDP per capita. It's the easiest uh, measure of, um, uh, easy, easiest simple measure of how well off are we economically. Uh, and you can see if, if your eyesight is better than mine, uh, starting in 1950, uh, GDP per capita was about $16,000 in, in current, this is all in current dollars. And by uh, 2000, it's up to uh, $50,000 and it's still around $50,000. We are dramatically better off than we were in the 1950s. Uh, just by enormous amounts. Um, and not just in that we, we don't just have seven times as much stuff. We don't have seven 1952 Chevys sitting in the front yard, although I'm at the certain age where that sounds like a good idea. Uh, but as a matter of fact, modern cars are just tremendously better. We don't have seven black and white television sets, each of which has three channels on them. We don't have seven 1950s doctors coming to visit us uh, when we get sick. Uh, the, the health, environment, all sorts of things have gotten better in ways that GDP doesn't capture. This kind of growth uh, is, is the most important thing to, to everybody's uh, economic prosperity. Now, unfortunately, you can see it tailing off. We, we dropped in the Great Recession, and we didn't really pick back Previously, we'd kind of jump back up to trend, and, and it's not really happening that much anymore. My next graph shows you, this is a, a little bit of a, uh, this, I, I blew it up from the 1970s, and I put it on a log scale, so you don't see dollars there anymore. But what that means is that steady growth rates is a straight line. So this allows you to see a little bit better how we're doing relative to steady growth rates. What used to happen is when there was a recession, like in the 70s, like in the 1980s, then there's a period of quick catch-up growth where you get back to kind of where you were going all along, but then there's this long-term growth rate, uh, which is really what, what matters for our long-term health. You can see, though, that starting in 2000, that, that tails off. 
then in the Great Recession, it, it jumped down about 10 percentage points, actually. And now we're on this new lower growth. We never got the catch-up growth, and we're on a new lower growth uh, trajectory. That's the big economic uh, danger of our time. Um, we're growing like at 2% rather than 3.5%. Our, our, our we seem to be heading into a new normal of half as much growth rate. Now, that, that piles up. Uh, and, and time, as we all know, flies by faster than you'd imagine. If the U.S. had grown at 2%, not 3.5% since 1950, uh, that average person having $50,000 would have about $25,000. So we're taught, when we think about economic growth and the difference between 3.5% and 2%, it kind of makes you fall asleep with little percentage points. But this is the difference between your grandchildren doubling their income or not. This is the difference between $23,000 and $50,000. Nothing we're talking about in economic policy has anything like the chance of doubling or halving the, the average American standard of living on all dimensions, not just material goods in, in a lifetime. Um, and 3.5%, that, you know, we need to get back to 3.5%, but that was just, the world wasn't, U.S. wasn't perfect then. Think what we could do if, if we could get even, even more growth. Um, all of our problems, so, so Lonnie mentioned the, the budget problem. The budget problem is, is a matter of economic growth. Uh, the government takes about 20% of, of, the federal government takes about 20% of GDP, pretty much no matter what tax rates are. If it raises tax rates, people find better shelters. If it lowers tax rates, people just pay them. It takes about 20% of GDP. The only way the government takes in more money is if GDP rises. Uh, so the key to paying for Social Security, Medicare, paying off the debt is if the economy grows. And if the economy doesn't grow, if these 2% forecasts turn into 1%, then we, we are, the government as a whole is, is in, in deep trouble much, much sooner than, than you thought. As one sense of, of, of doom and gloom, so this one is, it's kind of smooth. This is growth rates now, again, on, on the axis. But I took the Congressional Budget Office's forecasts of, uh, this is its idea of, of potential GDP, where you are without uh, recessions in it. Uh, oh, good. And so you can see, you know, 4% growth in the 50s, it slows down to, you know, 3.5% growth as the economy as a whole. And then starting around 2000, this dramatic decline in, in this long run growth rate. Now we're about here. The CBO thinks we're going to come back up to, to 2% and, and have some difficulties paying things off. But this is the future. If we stick down here, that just accumulates and, and we're in real trouble. And this, this is, you're seeing the decline of Western civilization in front of your eyes right here. This, this is the economic uh, uh, issue of our time. So where does growth come from? What, what, what can we do about it? Um, there, there is, once you start talking, let's get past a year or two, uh, growth comes from one and only one place, productivity. How much the average person produces per hour. Productivity, in turn, comes from one and only one place. Ideas. Uh, uh, Tyler Cowen, I forget the author. There's a great, the, the process of growth started when ideas started having sex. <laughs> one idea begets another idea. You see how you can use something. New ideas, new ways of doing things. And not just, you know, we, I have my iPhone here, you know, new, we're, we're interested in the new gadgets, but little prosaic things like Southwest Airlines figured out how to turn a jet around in 20 minutes. It still takes United about an hour and a half at the last time I looked. 
you know, little ways of organizing things better. Uh, Walmart figured out supply chain logistics and cut the price of stuff in half. These are all ways in which the average worker produces more stuff per hour. And that productivity comes, it's, it, everybody loves economic growth so long as it's in someone else's backyard. It's a very uncomfortable process because it comes from new companies displacing older companies and their workers and their unions and their management and the politicians who've come to depend on them and the regulators who depend on the politicians. Uh, it's a very painful process and almost all economic regulation is designed to stop or slow down growth to preserve the status of, of people and their ways of doing things. Where does growth not come from? Everything you hear about in the newspapers and alas on the political campaigns uh, currently. It does not come from the Fed, from interest rates, whether Mrs. Yellen sneezes up or down 20 basis points, uh, from unions, from, uh, from employment, from pay equity, from all the other stuff we talk about. There's a lot of talk now about, I, I just wrote my grumpy post. I was really grumpy last night if you want to read a grumpy, grumpy economist post. At, at the proposals that, that the Clinton campaign is, is making to force companies to pay more to their workers and that this is the key to growth. Sorry, no. You know, your, your ancestors may have worked in a coal mine with, with pick and shovels and had a horrible life and you're doing better. Why? Not because the, the, the employer paid more of the profits to the workers. So instead of getting 10 cents an hour for the, coal, for the pick and shovel, you got 20 cents an hour for the pick and shovel. No. The coal mine, now there's one person left who drives a big bulldozer and the rest of you figured out something else to do with your life. That's the process uh, of economic growth. Um, so uh, what, what are we going to do about it? Um, uh, we have to unleash productivity, rising uh, innovation to, to get back to growth. Now, uh, to, to what extent can you do that? Why, why are we growing so slowly? I'll be honest, people, are, people argue about this. Um, there's three views. Uh, one view is, is I'll call the uh, Larry Summers is and Keynesian macro view. There's one thing wrong with the economy, not enough demand. So what we need is, is just more demand. The government needs to borrow a ton of money and, and spend it. Uh, on, it doesn't matter what it spends it on. They say infrastructure, but the stimulus aspect of it, they don't say build a great wall against Mexico for stimulus, that would be fine. Another high-speed train from Tonopah to Winnemucca, uh, that would be fine too. Just blow a lot of money, that gives you demand. Theory number one. Uh, theory number two, uh, Bob Gordon, in, in a recent book, we just ran out of ideas. Now, you hang around the Silicon Valley and, and, and that doesn't make any sense at all. Theory number three, sort of my theory, is we're, we're, we're overwhelmed with sand in the gears. Too much regulation. Uh, the daily Wall Street Journal horror story of the Justice Department going after people. Uh, and, and what we need is nothing, no big magic bullet, nothing that makes for a, a great campaign slogan, but just, just clean it up. Uh, my analogy is, is we, America has woken up, we're, we're middle-aged, we're overweight, uh, so what are we going to do about it? Buy bigger pants, get used to it, carve up the pie. The 10-day miracle detox cleanse, that's the stimulus uh, approach, or how about diet and exercise and do what your mother told you to. It's painful, it's hard, but it's kind of like the tried and true thing that works. Now, now how much good can that do? Uh, my, uh, um, my friends uh, of, of other persuasions say, yeah, 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 there's too much regulation, but John, it's not really a big issue. 
Uh, one said, you know, I'm, I'm talking to all those companies in Silicon Valley, they're not complaining about regulation. Yeah, because they all have lobbyists in DC and you're not talking to the, to the companies that are out of business because they, they couldn't get the permits. So I, I made a graph to try to get a, a sense of how much could little clean up the attic stuff do altogether to, to help the US economy. What I got on the bottom here is the ease of doing business index. This is put together by the World Bank. And it, it's really simple. It, it combines things like how easy it to, I, I have this, this one's illegible, but I put together what it is. How easy is it to start a business, deal with construction permits, get electricity, so forth. And, and by the, the US is not great on all of these things. Uh, such libertarian paradises as New Zealand and Denmark are way ahead of the US on most of these things. The US is best on getting credit, the one dimension that I think we are possibly a little bit too good on. Uh, doesn't say anything about paying back said credit. But anyway, this, so let's line up income versus ease of doing business. And no surprise, the Central African Republic is down here, uh, horribly corrupt place. India is, is hard to do business. China is medium to do business. The US is easier to do business. And no surprise, income lines up pretty well with, with how easy it is to do business. What's surprising here is, is the enormous size uh, of the numbers. China is about $7,000 uh, per person. The US is about $50,000 per person. That correlates well with the 20 points difference in the ease of doing business in China. India is, is, is right on the lines. This is a huge difference. 7,000 versus 50,000, that, that's basically, that's, that's more than our growth from 1950 till now, uh, just represented by the difference in, in ease of doing business in the two countries. So I, I, I thought, you know, the US is not perfect. What if we got better? So I, I imagine frontier land here. Now, now 100 is achievable. A score of 100 is, is the best observed the best um, ease of doing business observed in some country. So these are things that actually have happened. This isn't, this isn't free market paradise. If you just put together best practices in every country, you're frontier land. And if you extend the line, which is a controversial question, but let's ex at least you can extend it a little bit, that raises the US for, from, from 50,000 into the 200,000. That's just an astounding amount of money. Now, and I'm not sure if I even believe in an astounding amount of money, but. Uh, that, that tells you there's a lot to be gained by, by just simple cleaning up and getting out of the way program. So the, the, what is surprising about this is, is maybe not in this room, but to, to economists, that bad government can have such hugely bad effects on an economy. Well, it stands to reason if our government isn't perfect, that better government can have hugely better effects on an economy. So let's talk about policies, which is what I'm supposed to be talking about. You may, m most of, of the people I talk to are tearing their hair out, uh, those of us who have some, on, 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 uh, on what an awful moment this is and how America's falling apart. And uh, you know, either presidential candidate doesn't, doesn't inspire great hopes for, at least what they're saying in the campaign trail, hopes for economic growth. But I think actually this is a very, this is a great moment. Let me inject, I'm not a grumpy economist. And one of the great things about being at Hoover is, uh, is every time I feel grumpy, every now and then George Schultz stops by my office and he tells me, John, stop being so grumpy, uh, because you have to be optimistic. And in fact, this is a moment of great optimism, I think. Our, our political parties are, are both in disarray 
And once every two generations, the US reform, our political parties are coalitions. They're kind of crazy coalitions. You know, the Democratic Party is a coalition of, of Goldman Sachs and Occupy Wall Street and government employee unions. What do they have together? And you think about the, the, the strange bedfellows in the Republican Party, and it's even more. So we're in a moment when these things will reform. Now, they could reform in, 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 in pernicious ways, and we head off to xenophobic populism uh, or socialism. But the, I, you know, there's a core middle of America that's quite sensible uh, and, and that wants its government to function well. And I think that will reform. And in fact, there are efforts underway. I think this is a moment when out-of-the-box thinking can, can actually succeed. Two, two instances, I have to peddle Hoover's latest book, <laughs> The Blueprint for America. <coughs> Under uh, Schultz's leadership, a bunch of us got together and, and, and uh, wrote essays on how we think you know, various policy things ought to get done. Uh, under, so far under the radar screen, despite his best efforts, uh, Paul Ryan is spearheading a, a better way, a legislative agenda that tries to think out of the box and, and, and break the, the paralysis of, of, that we've seen in American government. It's sort of the steady drift to overcomplication. Uh, um, you know, so serious people are, are thinking about serious stuff in that dimension. I'll, I'll, I'll plug my own. <laughs> my, so this is... My talk is stolen from an essay called Economic Growth, where I tried to put together 17 other essays, uh, which you can find, uh, find, find easily from Google if you want. So this is a, a moment, I think, when there is actually hope that after the silly season of this summer settles down, uh, America sits back to how do we govern, how do we fix our government, how do we fix our systems. The political parties, let's hope they reform. Something emerges from the ashes that, that's sensible and, and, and big changes like in the 1980s when Reagan came in or, or in the 1930s when Roosevelt came in, maybe to a different effect, but nonetheless, big changes can happen occasionally, and this is a good time. So uh, what are we going to... Uh, uh, this is interesting. Okay. Um, uh, what, 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 uh, let me just outline. I, I can't do all policies uh, everywhere, but let's outline uh, some things that... Uh, we could talk about. Um, I, I want to think about a policy program that gets out of the stale arguments. Um, first of all, I want it to be effective. Policies that actually will work and will get us economic growth as we understand it. Second, uh, America's political and economic system is mired in, it's like a dysfunctional marriage where we've been at this for 30 years, and, and he says, you're a terrible cook, and she says, well, you don't pick up your socks, and we just sit there whining at each other the whole time, saying the same things over and over again. So let, let, we need to find a language that breaks out of that, and, and not just, you should have listened to me 30 years ago when I told you to cut taxes. So, uh, in, in, and I think a big thing we need is a vast simplification of our national life. Uh, Lonnie's gorgeous Obamacare uh, picture. Well, that's what Dodd-Frank looks like, and that's what the EPA looks like, and that's what everything looks like. We're, we're trying these massively complicated things that everybody knows doesn't work. Our government is, the big problem is just competence. They can't get basic stuff done. So with those big pictures in mind, what would we do on, on some of the items on the policy uh, agenda? Um, 
Reforming uh, taxes. Oh, boy, how to put an audience to sleep, talk about taxes. I got to do it. So the tired, uh, every time we talk about taxes, um, the, uh, you put together a bipartisan commission. They say, we need to cut, cut, cut taxes. Uh, and then we get into this whole argument about more taxes versus less taxes, taxing the rich. It's about who pays. Uh, so let's get out of that argument. We need to break apart the tax argument. For the, the, our taxes try to do, always trying to do too much is, is the problem. We're trying to raise revenue for the government, redistribute income across people, and subsidize a bunch of activities. And when we try to reform taxes, we simultaneously uh, pick the structure and argue about the rates. So you don't just say, we'll have three brackets, you say what those will be, and then everyone starts fighting immediately. So the answer, and let's have some little marriage counseling for the tax code. The answer is let's talk separately about the socks and separately about the cooking and separately about uh, staying out night with your buddies bowling, you know, break those down. How do we raise revenue for the government at minimal distortion to the economy? If, if you ask any group of economists, the answer is simple. We need to have a, a simple broad-based consumption tax, no corporate taxes, no estate taxes, nothing else. A simple broad-based consumption tax that applies to just about everything. And we could have, let's have this, you know, the way to, to do this is let's agree on that structure and then put all the other stuff off. Let, you know, we'll come back and talk about the rates. And they could be high if you want. Actually, economies with simple, clean tax codes and high rates don't do so badly. So maybe for a while we'll have high rates. In the end, the tax rate is how much the government spends. So you get that with spending, not, not with tax rates. Uh, similarly, let's break apart the subsidy code and the tax code. If you want to, I, I, um, I, I live in Palo Alto, so all my neighbors drive around Teslas, really nice electric cars. They're beautiful cars, I got to admit. You know, I'm, I'm a middle-aged guy, I like cars. But what, what irks me is that $10,000 of my money goes straight into their wallets every time they buy one of these things. Um, so, so let, but, and that's a tax credit. It's a, it's a horrible tax credit because it goes only to rich people because it, it, you reduce your income taxes proportional to how much you get. So if we're going to do stuff like that, fine. Or if, or if, or if we're going to take tax money and subsidize the, the mortgages of my neighbors in Palo Alto by buying their million-dollar houses, fine. Put that on budget. Can you imagine a proposal before Congress to write checks to homeowners in proportion to how much money they borrowed Larger checks for richer people and larger checks for people who get bigger houses. That's what the mortgage interest deduction does. Okay, fine. Let's just agree all the subsidies go on budget and we'll talk about the subsidies. Whatever you want is fine. You know, I'm, I'm kind of stacking the deck because once we do it that way, crazy stuff won't happen, but that's good. And, and then there's kind of, there's a danger. We like to pretend that spending is low and taxes are low. So our government does stuff like well, we'll let you take off your taxes, your electric cars and your mortgages. It looks like we're not taxing and spending, but we are. It's exactly the same as taxing and then writing those checks. Let's tax and spend when we tax and spend. You can see how by, by doing the argument more honestly, I think we can make some progress. Um, uh, labor law. One of the biggest, our government says they want jobs, and there's, there's nothing more regulated than the act of employing someone to do something for you. Uh, we, Uber, I think, is a great example of, of what's happened. It, it's been a, that's another productivity, it, 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 productivity enhancing thing. A new business comes in, taxi companies 
hate it and they run to get regulations against it. Uh, but it opens up people's ability to earn money in, in little scraps of time. I, I was reading Mrs. Clinton's acceptance speech. She wanted the government to help the work-life balance. Well, there's nothing like letting people drive for Uber to get to let you have a work-life balance as opposed to an eight-hour job that gets you Obamacare benefits and all the rest of it. Uh, that kind of freedom can help. Social programs. We're into this uh, argument about um, do we spend more, do we spend less? That's the, that's the, okay, couples therapy, stop arguing about how much we spend. The real problem with social programs is their disincentives. Uh, disability is a classic example. There's 10,000 people on disability, 10 million people on disability. Once you're on, you never leave. It's, it's Hotel California. Uh, be, because if you earn a dollar, then you lose your disability benefits. So why would you move to a place with a job or earn an extra dollar? It might cost us more money to, to, to get rid of those cliffs. The highest tax people in this country are not us. The highest tax people are poor people in this country because if they earn an extra dollar, they can lose a dollar ten worth of benefits. And, and, if, and they're not lazy. They just they see the writing on the wall and do the same thing. Immigration. Uh, boy, that's an unpopular thing to mention these days. Uh, as, as, as Franklin Roosevelt once said, my fellow immigrants, he started a, a, a talk to the Daughters of the American Revolution with my fellow immigrants uh, and sons of daughters of immigrants. We, we are all. Our country benefits from immigration. From, we're doing it spectacularly wrong. Uh, we let in people, we don't let them work, and then we complain that they absorb social services. Uh, our country needs people who want to come in and want to work. That would help inequality a lot. If you worry about inequality, the fact that certain wages are so high is because it's really hard to get programmers. You let more in programmers in from India, inequality goes down. And they start new jobs. A, a particular tragedy, I used to work at a business school, and uh, we have these wonderful MBAs. They were this just amazing people. They want to come to America. They want to start business, employ Americans. And what do we do? We kick them out of the country. They want to, by the way, pay for Social Security. <laughs> Who, we're, we're, our population is aging. Our population is declining. We have a Social Security mess. We have a debt mess. Why don't we let in a bunch of entrepreneurs who are just dying to pay taxes to, to pay this stuff off? We, trade is good for us, and immigration is good for us. Uh, education is, 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 of course, the central problem. We have a problem in the U.S., uh, which we need to pay attention to, of, of Fishtown, as Charles Murray puts it, uh, and, and, and fixing the education system. As Lonnie didn't use the word vouchers, but he came close. Uh, similarly, uh, Dodd-Frank and, and Obamacare, I won't, I won't belabor the how you fix it, but there are simple, clean fixes to both of these problems uh, that could get us, get, they could remove the, the regulatory bureaucracy, which is now, now bringing the whole business to a halt. I, I actually know something about Obamacare exchanges and off-exchange policies, because my daughter just turned 27, and so we don't have employer policies anymore for her. My goodness, what a disaster. Uh, yes, Americans have health insurance coverage, but it doesn't pay for anything, which is not particularly helpful. Um, the key to health insurance, actually, let's think outside the box on that one. We, we keep arguing about who pays for stuff, and there are ways to fix that. The big thing that we don't talk about is, is supply. You walk into a hospital, and they won't tell you how much it's going to cost. That's just amazing. How could you walk into a business, and they won't tell you how much it's going to cost? Well, that's, what's that a sign of? That's a clear sign of there is no supply competition. 
Because if you could easily start up a hospital next door and post the prices, you'd get all their business. So the fact that that doesn't happen, that's, that's alerting you to. We're, we're heading in both finance and medicine to this, this horrible system with three or four big companies, intensely regulated, sources of great political support and campaign contributions, protected from all competition, uh, and, and, and innovation competition, better service go, goes by the wayside. So you can see, uh, um, I, I'll, uh, whoops. Um, uh, um, there's a, the same philosophy, I think, can apply across the spectrum and deliver us growth-oriented policies in a way that attracts to bipartisan goals. We really have the same goals. It's, it's a question of the means uh, to those goals. Um, and, and, and there's, there, I think it's, uh, it's achievable. Now, from an economist's point of view, <laughs> um, no one ever got famous. This is L. Adam Smith. The trouble from my fellow economists is they want the new stimulus program, something that gets you a Nobel Prize. I actually work on monetary economics and, and, and the Fed and interest rates. That's my academic specialty. And, and I'm kind of proud of the fact that I'm here to tell you, what my expertise tells you is that's not important. Probably the only economist who'll ever tell you the thing that I work on is not important to long-run growth. <laughs> but we have to have that attitude, cleave it up. Now, so it's not hard, it's not clever. I think this is actually a moment when uh, it's worth thinking about this. So Hoover is ideas for a free society. It's worth thinking about these basic ideas because I think uh, the flux of American politics and the fact that there's a sensible middle that says yes, I want a simple, clean government that gets stuff done. Uh, I, I think as soon as one of the parties figures out they can grab those by ditching the crazies that they the, that they're the current bedfellows, that in fact America will heal itself, and we'd better, because that that's more a hope than a forecast. Our current state is is declining, slow growth, which is is going to cause political problems as well as economic problems, creeping cronyism. Um, uh, we, uh, less and less new businesses are being started. More and more businesses, even tech now. Google has, has tons, of, uh, tons of lawyers and lobbyists. The tech is going to Washington too. Um, that leads to just fighting over the spoils. Uh, eventually, uh, government, uh, our, our government is spending so much money writing checks to people, it doesn't do basic stuff like public health, like fighting Zika viruses or the next pandemic or whatever. Uh, so so the, the decline of Western civilization is in the air. I think America has the capacity once again to reinvent itself, but, but we'd better. Okay, thank you very much. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.